Our Father in heaven, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, for your glory, through Christ the Lord, our Saviour. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series through Colossians this afternoon, uh, and as you heard in the reading, chapter 2 from verses 6 through 15, and if you've been with us over the past month uh, or thereabouts, as we study the letter, you might have noticed something happens in today's passage. Something happens in today's passage that hasn't happened uh, so far in the letter. And that is, in these verses, Paul tells the Colossians to do something. Prior to this, he's not told them to do anything. He's said a lot about what, the God, what God the Father has done for them. He's said a lot about who Jesus Christ is and what his life, his death, his resurrection have accomplished, both for the cosmos and for them. He said some important things about God-appointed ministers of Christ. And all those things do have implications. They did have implications for the Colossians, and they do have implications for us. But Paul has not yet directly told them, do this, until now. And now he gives two commands, two direct instructions, two imperatives, we call them. The first is in verse 6, walk in him, or continue in him, continue to live your lives in him. And the second is in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. Live this way, in verse 6, don't let this happen, verse 8. In fact, see to it that this does not happen. And then from verses 9 through to 15, the, the firm foundation, the reason, the deep and great and solid realities that underpin both live this way in verse 6 and don't let this happen in verse 8. So we have an exhortation, we have a warning, and we have a foundation for both. And that's how we're going to approach this passage this afternoon. But before we do, we need to remember what's going on in the church at Colossae. Why is Paul writing this letter to them? Well, the church in Colossae had only come into existence five, six, seven years before, uh, before Paul wrote this letter, that is. Uh, Paul had been preaching the gospel in the city of Ephesus, the great port city about 100 miles away, and he'd sent some of those who had come to faith through his preaching inland from Ephesus as missionaries. That's what's going on in the book of Acts, in uh, chapter 19 and verse 10. Paul preached there for two years, it says, and all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's where Epaphras comes into the story. He was one of those, a young man in Ephesus, maybe studying there, maybe making a start to his chosen career. But while he was in Ephesus, he heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And Paul sent him home, back to Colossae, to tell the good news. So he did, and a church was born. Now it's five, six, seven, eight years later, and some things in the church are going well, and there's much to give thanks for. And that's what Paul does in the op opening part of the letter. He, think, he gives thanks to God for what he, that is God, has done. But even though things are going well, mostly, uh, the church is in danger. It faces a threat. False teaching, lies, half-truths. 
So Epaphras travels to see Paul, both to tell him what's going well and to tell him of some of the threats, some of the false ideas threatening the church. Now pause there and just let that sink in for a moment. Paul is now in Rome, in prison. There's no email, there's no WhatsApp. According to Google Maps, the journey from Colossae to Rome that Epaphras would have had to make, including ferry crossings across the uh, Aegean Sea and then the Adriatic, is just short of 1,200 miles. In fact, it's almost exactly the same distance as walking from here in Kenilworth to Rome. Now, how seriously did Epaphras take false ideas? And we're not even talking about false ideas that openly and obviously oppose Christianity. We're not talking about anti-Christian crusaders like the late Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris. No, the false ideas that threatened the church at Colossae were well motivated. These people wanted more, more of God, a greater experience of the Christian life. They advocated zeal and devotion. They put to shame all complacency and half-heartedness. Leave the shallows behind, they said. Come and dive the deep waters of God. Open your mind and your heart to the deep things of God. Can't fault them for passion, for hunger, for an experience of the reality of God. We're talking about people like Bill Johnson, Chris Vallotton, Danny Silk, other leaders of the Bethel Church in California today. We're talking about ideas about how to experience the full Christian life, some greater spirituality, something accessible only to those who know the secrets. But Epaphras didn't say, well, they're hungry for God, their intentions are good, they're talking about Jesus, and you know all that supernatural stuff is real, and their self-denial and discipline are impressive. That's no big deal. We all want the same thing after all. No. Epaphras said, there's something about this that just isn't right. I don't know what it is, but I can smell it. It's in the air of their teaching. They, these ideas, don't, they just don't smell right. This, this doesn't sound like Paul. And their ideas are starting to poison people I love. My brothers, my sisters in Christ, I need to go and talk to my teacher. I need to go and see Paul. And so he goes, 1,200 miles. And Paul listens and Paul prays and Paul writes this letter and sends it back in the hands of another of his young protégés, Tychicus, who we meet later in the letter. Another 1,200 miles. That's almost 2,500 miles traveled. To put that into perspective, that's walking from here to Moscow and halfway back. How seriously did Paul and Epaphras and Tychicus take false ideas? Even false ideas that were well-intentioned and oh so close to the truth. How seriously do you take the threat of well-intentioned, almost right ideas about what it means to live the Christian life? And so now, when Paul gets to the imperatives in his letter, when he gets to these direct commands to the church, we need to hear this with all the urgency, with the gravity 
that fueled two and a half thousand miles on foot and ferry to get this message, this message to you. Walk in him and see to it that no one takes you captive. So let's get to them now. An exhortation, a warning, and the firm foundation for both. The exhortation, verses 6 and 7. So then, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, live your lives in him, rooted, built up in him, established, strengthened in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What does Paul mean when he says to the Colossians, you received Christ Jesus? What does that mean? Well, very simply, he means that they received an account of the life death and resurrection of Jesus and all that that meant. He means that they received from Epaphras, who received it from him, the message, the news, the content, the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. There is an objective body of truth about Jesus Christ, about what he has done in the flesh of a man on earth, in history, And what all of that means. And they received it. But he also means that they embraced that objective body of truth about Jesus Christ. They didn't merely obtain it. They loved it. They rejoiced in it. When my wife received the diamond ring from me uh, at sunrise in the Cedarburg Mountains 20-something years ago, She received both an object in her hand, on her finger, and she received all that that ring meant in her heart. There was both an object of content, a diamond ring, and a subject of laying hold of it, and all that it meant, and rejoicing in it. The Colossians received objectively true information about Jesus. And with all their hearts, they took hold of that truth and loved it. Now, what was that objective truth that they received? Well, Paul tells us in another of his letters exactly what the content of his preaching was. That Christ died for our sins. And he was buried. And he was raised. And he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and then to five hundred others at one time, most of whom were still alive when Paul was preaching these things. In other words, he's saying, you can go and ask the eyewitnesses who saw him, who saw him dead and then saw him alive. Check these things out. Check that what I'm saying actually happened as historical fact. The eyewitnesses are still alive. There was an object of content to Paul's preaching. Jesus Christ crucified on a cross for your sins, buried in the tomb, raised for your life. But as I said last week, you do not get the benefits of Christ's work apart from the person of Christ himself. And he is the Lord. As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him. Walk in Christ the Lord. What does it mean to walk in Christ the Lord? Christian, is your life recognizably under the lordship of another? Or do you set your own agenda? Do you belong to the king? 
Does he, by his word, set your priorities? Or are they set by the world around you? Or by your own preferences? Don't dismiss that question too quickly. Does your diary, your daily and weekly calendar, look like it has been set by Jesus Christ, the Lord? Or by the ambitions that animate a world under the sway of the evil one? We could go on to ask about budget, about speech, about lifestyle, about parenting, about work, vocation, about every other practicality of life. But let's just ask for today, what about your diary? Is it given to the Lord? Well, what about us as a church? We all want a full experience of worship when we gather together, don't we? But will we submit to the Lordship of the risen Lord Jesus Christ as he tells us in his word exactly what that is? Or will we allow other, oh so close to true, oh so well-intentioned ideas about what the worship of the church ought to be to shape our practices? Well, what if you're here listening or online today and you're not a Christian? you'll hear some objective truth about who Jesus is. Will you receive it? Will you receive it as true with a capital T? It makes it no less true if you don't. But if you do, it should move your heart to two things. To fear and to love. Fear because we will hear in a few minutes that all the godness of God lives in Jesus. And that means, among other things, that he will pronounce the final judgment that will determine the eternal destiny of your body and soul. Eternal pleasure in heaven or eternal torment in hell for you will be decided by Jesus Christ, the Lord. And love. Because Christ died for the sins of sinners like me and like you. And if you will receive the truth of who he is and of what he has done into your heart and love that truth and embrace it and rejoice in it, then you will be saved. What was the objective content of Paul's preaching? Jesus Christ crucified for your sins. Raised for your life. Do you love that truth? And as you were rooted in him, verse 7, now be built up in him. Growth in Christian maturity is growth in Christ. Note how Paul combines two metaphors here. Rooted and built up. A plant and a building. You are rooted in him. And just as the roots of an apple tree can only produce an apple tree, so rooted in Christ, the structure of your life, Christian, and of our life together, church, must produce Jesusness, increasing Christ-likeness. As you grow up, as the church is built up, you and we must look more and more like we are under the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you were taught, still in verse 7, now be established, be strengthened in the faith. Note in the faith, not in your faith, 
be established in the faith, in the objective content of the faith. Uh, Dick Lucas, who will be known to some, if not many of you, wrote of this verse, As usual with Paul, there is this great stress on the importance of teaching. Without the full truth and a mature understanding of it, there cannot be a satisfying Christianity or a stable church. So according to Paul, a hallmark of the Spirit's work is an unquenchable thirst to learn. Two and a half thousand miles to get this message to Colossae. Add another 2,000 years to get it to you. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, as you were rooted in Christ the Lord, as you were taught Christ the Lord, now walk in Him, now grow up in Him, now be established in the truth about Him. Does that sound narrow? Does that sound restrictive? Does it sound boring? Well, then we don't have a good picture of Christ. To live under the Lordship of the Lord is true life. It is real and everlasting life. It is as big, it is a big life (laughs) as part of the eternal story of the King. It is true freedom. That's why Paul warns in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. Someone is out to capture the Colossians' allegiance, to take their hearts. Paul is not writing just a, hey, how's it going later, just to some friends. There's a battle going on. There's a hunt. And in somebody's ambition, the Colossian church is the prey. Don't get captured. See to it, Paul says. Don't allow yourself to get bound up by hollow, empty ways of thinking, man-made ideas and traditions. Don't allow yourselves to be enslaved, bound up, shackled by ideas about spirituality that are ultimately animated by the powers of hell itself. Don't be taken captive. What does it look like to be taken captive? To be shaped by anything and everything that is not according to Christ. To be shaped in thought, in heart, in affection, in passion, in ambition, in your diary, by anything and everything other than Christ the Lord and Christ the Lord alone. So we have an exhortation. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And a grave warning. See to it that no one takes you captive by any way of thinking that doesn't center on Christ. Why? What is the firm foundation for both the exhortation and the warning? Verse 9. For in Him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Stop right there. You know, one of my favorite things to do is to go walking at nighttime. Um, 
at least I used to do it a lot more when I was younger and in Cape Town when times were safer. I used to walk along the lower contours of the mountain uh, between sort of midnight and two in the morning and just find somewhere to sit and stare at the sky and the stars, countless stars. This verse reminds me of staring at the stars. It is just so full. The truth of it is just so overwhelmingly magnificent. It draws my heart to just sit and stare at the beauty of it. Just listen to it. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. All that deity means dwells in Christ. What does deity mean? It means he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. It means him to whom belongs all honor and eternal dominion, It means him before whom the mighty seraphim hide their faces. It means him to whom the choir of ten thousand times ten thousand angels sing, Worthy are you to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever, forever, forever. means him of whom the Father said, My beloved. You received Christ the Lord. Walk in him. Grow in him. Know and hunger for the truth about him. And let no one take you captive with any other ideas. Why? In him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And verse 10, you have been filled in Him. In Him. In Him. Him in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. In Him you have been filled. Have been. In Him you already have all the fullness of life that can be had the side of heaven. Now grow into that life. Grow in Christ-likeness. Grow in Christian maturity. In Christ, you already have all the spiritual fullness that God means you to have, the side of heaven. You need no other Savior. You need no other Lord. What you need is to continue to live in Him. Grow up in Him. Be built up in Him in whom you are already rooted. What you need is to be strengthened in the truth about Him, about who He is. All spiritual fullness, all spiritual fullness is yours in Him because you are joined to Him by faith. That's what Paul's saying in verses 11 and 12. You, by faith, have become a partaker 
a sharer in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. In baptism, you said to Jesus, I believe. You told the whole world and all the angels and the spiritual powers of darkness, I belong to Jesus Christ the Lord. You who were dead, verse 13, you who were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. What does that mean? In what way were you dead? What is the uncircumcision of your flesh? You were spiritually dead. Unable to choose or even to want spiritual life. Unable to raise yourself from spiritual death to spiritual life, even if you could choose it, which you couldn't, and even if you could want it, which you couldn't. You were dead. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is, not only were you dead, but in the sinful state of your heart, you were devoted to your sin and death. You loved it. Not only did you not want, could you not want life, you were devoted to your spiritual deadness. You were spiritually dead in your sin. You wanted to be spiritually dead in your sin. You were devoted to your spiritual deadness in your sin. And you, verse 13, who were dead in your sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, cancelling the record that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. In Christ, all your sins are forgiven. In Christ, God has made you who were dead now alive. Forgiveness through Christ, fellowship with Christ, fullness in Christ. What more could you want? Where else will you look? See to it that no one takes you captive by any ideas about the spiritual life that are not according to Christ. The Christ you received is Lord of all. Walk in Him. Continue in Him. Live in Him. Let me pray for us. Father, we were dead in our sin and transgression, in the uncircumcision of our hearts. We loved our sin, we loved our death, but you made us alive. Father, I pray you would continue that work in our hearts now, that you would continue to open our eyes day by day to see who Christ is. That you would take us to the mountain at night time, you would take us to your word and open the eyes of our hearts to see him in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. That we would see and know and rejoice in what it means that we are filled in him. May it be the ambition of our lives, the passion of our hearts, the preoccupation of our days to walk in him to be built up in Him, to be established in the faith. Would you make our spiritual 
sense of smell so sensitive to anything else that even before we know what it is, we would just smell it. This isn't Christ. Would you be glorified as we live these kinds of lives, Father? Amen.